You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For, the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. If you are a fan of the podcast, I thank you very much. And if you haven't done so already, I would appreciate it if you would leave us a review on iTunes, leave a rating, all that stuff really helps. Maybe even spread the word, tell a friend about the podcast. It's always, That's how we've been mainly growing, mainly all through all these organic referrals from friends as well. So I'd really appreciate it. If you want to, I guess, get more involved with what I'm creating and if you enjoy what I'm doing, definitely sign up for the weekly newsletter where I share the essays, the podcast, as well as what I actually go through on a weekly basis in terms of building out this platform and just going through my own journey as well so that you don't ever have to feel like you're do- going through your own journey alone. There's someone out there, especially me, going through it and I share all the fun details on the newsletter. And there's other ways to support like donating, a coffee, etc. So if you want to, check it out at omdventures.com and yeah, I really appreciate it. Now, Tuning into today's conversation, it is with Karm Sumal. He is the CEO and co-founder of Daily Hive. Daily Hive is a national news media company that started out in Vancouver when it was then called Van City Buzz, and now it has offices in Calgary, Montreal, and Toronto. It's a site that started in 2008 amid a competitive industry with many regional and national giants. It garners as much as 70 million page views a month. That's really not too shabby, right? Considering that I think Canada as a country has just over 30 million in population. Maybe we're getting close to 40 with more immigrants coming in. But yeah, that's very impressive, I would say. Karm did not dream of owning a t- digital media company, though. It's not like he had decided at an early age that this was what he was going to do. No. He was born to immigrants in the east side of Vancouver. He became a CPA and controller for Blends Coffee for the stable job. That was what a lot of my friends and I did as well in the idea of going into accounting. And oh, for some of the East Side, East Coast people here in Toronto who are not familiar with blends, it's practically the second cup of the West Coast. And But for Carm, his, his co-founders and him, when they were still cooking up the idea of Van City Buzz at the time, they felt that Van- the Vancouver news media didn't really cater to the Vancouver he saw, the Vancouver that was made up of middle-class immigrants that make up most of what the city is today. And this started the 12-year journey of Daily Hive. In our conversation, we talk about his early years of starting Daily Hive, what learnings he carried over to running his own company from the corporate world to the media landscape of what it is kind of like right now in Toronto and Canada, I'd say, and how a newly fledgling media company would deal with it, how CARM might think about starting a company in this kind of climate and all the constant ups and downs of operating a national media company. As someone who's in the early years of building his own media company, this has been a very selfish conversation and I definitely got a lot of learning out of talking with Carm and it was also very inspiring for me. Um, You know, it's not too often you meet a CPA with tattoos all on his sleeve <laughs> who runs a media company and so this was super fun a super f- cool interview and i really hope that you enjoy my conversation with carm 
Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Karm Small. Hey Karm, thanks for coming to the podcast. How's it going, buddy? Good, good. Karm here is the CEO and co-founder of Daily Hive based out of here, this beautifully rainy city in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> so typical that it rains as I'm walking towards yeah. this interview. Uh, so Karm, for our listeners who, a lot of them happen to be in the East Coast who might not be familiar with Daily Hive, which used to also be called Van City Buzz. Can you kind of give our listeners a breakdown on like what the business is? What do you guys do? Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously we grew out of the West Coast and we're strong in the West Coast, but we branched out um, to Toronto and Montreal uh, three years, three and a half years now ago. And um, Daily Hive just it's a it's a digital media publication that focuses on hyper local, so kind of get to know your city. But we focus on the things that uh, traditional papers don't focus on. So news, obviously, we touch base on news, but we put it from a lens that's under 40 um, primarily uh, and then we focus on what's going on in your city the people the movers and the shakers that are doing some good things put, putting a spotlight on them um, because we always feel like it's the people that move the city and they're the ones that know the city more intimately than anybody else and you can get your news anywhere now right like uh, you don't need to, another news website but we couple the news with everything else so that people stay informed about not just the, the you know the news and the bad stuff that's happening but also like hey where should i go to go, you know go out this weekend or where do i go to grab a good bite to eat or if i want my best burger where do i go in toronto right so that's the kind of stuff that we want to uh also highlight mm-hmm. and i think right now the site gets anywhere from like 9 to 14 million page views every month um, that's what the, those are the facts that I found. Yeah. Has it grown exponentially? Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, nine, I don't know. Matt, last time we did nine, we've done. Uh, I think last month we did like seventeen five. Oh, nice. Um, our biggest month was nineteen something. Okay. So it's it's getting there. Yeah, yeah. yeah my goal is to hit. You know, I want to hit thirty thirty million page views very very soon, um, and keep growing it. And just that's just nationally in Canada. I want to hit thirty million, and then you know, obviously, what else comes through in our uh, American expansion is always a bonus for now as we kind of continue to tread lightly in that territory. <laughs> and I think in the early days of da- Daily Hive, when it was Fan City Buzz, um, I, th- I think I read about how the original I- or the early idea was that, hmm, you know, the West West Side older folks have this news out there for themselves, but there really isn't a voice for the millennials, like people in the 18 to 35. And it makes me wonder... Did you grow up in the east side of Vancouver? And so did you feel that kind of <laughs> rejection <laughs> yeah. from that side? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely felt, I mean, you know, being, let's say, you know, you grew up in Vancouver, being from the east side, and then also not being white. Um, the news never really, really spoke to a, to me as I was growing up. I think it's, I, I might have changed now. I don't really listen, like, I don't watch the news or listen to the radio anymore. Um, I get all my news online, like most people do. So, I mean, it might have changed. Um, but at the time, you know, I was just like, it didn't feel like it ever spoke to me and it never really spoke to my part of the town or the people that I knew that were doing cool things. And I was like, oh, you know, like there's got to be more out there. And you kind of search for it. And there was alternative papers out there, but they were, again, predominantly, um, you know, they focused on white people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's not their fault. Like, you know, it's not like they, I don't even think it's intentional or anything. It's just like who, you know. You know, it's who you grew up around. And if you are a white kid in the west side of the city, you don't know any other anything else. And we knew, like, we'd grown up on the east side. It was everybody. You had the Filipinos, the Latinos, the 
uh, brown people to Asians of all varieties. Like it was all there and, and, you know, sprinkled in some white people there. It wasn't that many back then. A lot more now since the prices are so expensive on the West side, <laughs> but, um, they weren't there before. Like I remember my school, there was only like, I think every grade had like three or four white people. That's it. And it was just brown people and Asian people. So for me, it was just like, there's gotta be more to the city. And how do we put a lens on it? Um, that tells the story of Vancouver. Um, and what we felt was like a different take on the city and, you know, there's no wrong takes. It's just a different take. Um, it's our lens of what we think it is and what we know it is and the people that we know that make it what it is. Mm -hmm. And this kind of venture has kind of framed you as a digital media entrepreneur, but I read that this wasn't really the dream. Like when you were growing up, you didn't tell yourself, I'm going to own this giant media company. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know. No. (laughs) What was your dream back then? I think I always wanted to like be like an something to do with like architecture always inspired me. Really? Um, but then, you know, people were saying like, yo, you need to be like really good at physics and math and shit. Like you can't just draw wonky buildings and hope someone builds it. I was like, okay, well maybe I'm out. (laughs) Um, and I, you know, I like to draw. That was always something that I like to do. And I'd love to get back to when I have some spare time. But other than that, I don't really didn't have like a dream of like, I don't know. Like I was just that kid that I was, I was good at shit. Um, you know, I can do math. I could, I, I was okay at writing and re- like all that, but like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, the parents will say, you got to go to college and get a good job and blah, blah, blah. And that's just like the typical, you know, East Indian kind of mentality that you kind of grew up around back then when your parents are first generation Canadians or not. Wait, our first, would they be first generation? If they're with, no, 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 no. They're immigrants. They're, they're to immigrants yeah, yeah. I was first generation. Right. So, um, that was just what you did so you kind of i don't know like i don't even think kids were allowed to really truly explore Mm -hmm. if you were a son of an immigrant or a woman you know a daughter of an immigrant if you were even allowed to truly explore who you are as an individual Mm -hmm. because i don't think you had that i don't think it was there for a lot of them like Mm -hmm. my parents didn't even have time to take me to extracurricular activities so how the fuck am i gonna know what i'm at good at or what i want to do um, at school was, it, it, I don't know how it is now, but it was very regiment, right? You do, you do math then you do history, then you do like this. It's like, okay, cool. So you kind of don't really get that creative freedom. I think that children need to really explore what they like. Mm-hmm. I think it's changed now. My son who's nine, um, you know, I let him do a, maybe a little bit too lenient, but I let him do whatever he kind of feels like. And I always just tell him like, yo, do what makes you you know, feel happy as long as whatever makes you feel happy isn't hurting anybody, right? You don't want to do things that's crazy. But um, I, yeah, like, I don't know, I, I, you know, a long, long-winded answer, but I didn't really, uh, outside of maybe being an architect, I don't think I had a dream. And that one died pretty quickly once I found out what the qualifications were. And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I kind of gave up on that real quick. And also I was like, I didn't know any brown, out, you know, architects mm. or anybody that was an architect for that matter, right? Like mm-hmm. I didn't really dive into it. Um at all i kind of let it just kind of slide like real quick it was mm. just like a flash in the pan it's funny because we we both have a past as accountants but i also my dream was to be an architect when i was For in real? school yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's I, trippy like i i had a whole portfolio right like i took architecture classes at like emily car yeah. and okay so you um, took way more steps ahead of the well, <laughs> kind of, kind of like, yeah. but i was the opposite spectrum where i was like oh like I, i'm killing physics i'm so yeah. good at all this like math and shit yeah. but i was really bad at drawing and every time <laughs> i'm in art class I was just getting blown up by all these other kids. Like, 
shit, how am I going to draw buildings? If I can? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Like, you can explain it to it, people. Yeah, it's like a weird dichotomy. Yeah. <laughs> shit, maybe we should have just like, combined our brains yeah, and maybe. we could have been good, good at it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the audience can't see this, unfortunately, but you have, you know, two practically full sleeve tattoos. And yeah. so I'm wondering, did you draw that? Is that part of your drawing uh, uh, creativity right there? No, a lot of these tattoos are from my friend, Billy DeCola. He's a lo- uh, local guy that does a lot of these tattoos. Um, I drew this one, but... You know, um, I didn't, yeah, no, I'd like to say that I, you know, I'm this good of a draw. I'm not that good. I think, uh, like anything, it's a craft, right? You got to perfect it. You got to work on it. I just like to, for me, it's like, I'm naturally decent at it. So I, it's a good Zen kind of like zoning out Mm -hmm. kind of meditative kind of process for me. Mm -hmm. And so with, with that mindset of, you know, okay, I like drawing, but maybe architecture, isn't it? You ended up going to business school. You yeah. went to Simon Fraser University, started accounting, and then came out, took the accountant's path, and went to Blends for, it was like 11 years. Yeah, long time. Yeah, you yeah. were a controller there. And that's where, you know, Fancity Buzz just started coming out. I think it was four years into Blends that you started it in like 2008. And now it's been like 12 years running yeah. what is now Daily Hive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Um, you know, Blends, uh, um, for me... Oh, sorry. For the East Side, East Coast audience, so blends is like blends a second is, cup. Yeah, blends is like second cup. Yeah, yeah. It's like a second cup. Um, I think second cup sells weed now. I don't know. I can't remember. Oh, shit, really? they want, I think they wanted to. I think they're really trying to. They're they're trying to figure out their. I mean, second cup is looking for a second chance. Let's look at put yeah. it that way. You know, there's like so many mom and pop coffee shops and so many like hipster coffee shops now that the blends and the st- second cups of the world are competing with a lot of people, not just Starbucks anymore or Tim Hortons in the East Coast. Um, you know, it's a t- cutthroat business, but the people there were really, really cool. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot of, uh, you know, just just by observing how they operated and stuff. I kind of learned how how to be a good manager. You know, taking the good qualities of what they did and then looking at what I thought wasn't good and how you know, because I had both ends of the spectrum. Looking at how the employees reacted to how um, certain management decisions were made, and you kind of like you know, I being in the middle you know i hear from the management's decision and the employees and i was like it's really just about delivery and how how they were kind of delivering the message and it was almost like authoritarian and i think there was a gap between if you looked at management and you looked at the younger kids that were in the junior positions there was a huge age gap and then that huge age gap you really saw in the way that they wanted to be treated and everything and you know the older guard just it was very micromanaging authoritarian and you better do what the fuck I say or you're out. Whereas kids are like, it's not what I want. It's not what I want to hear. Give me the freedom to show you what I can do, right? So um, l- learning that earlier on kind of really helped me understand now how to sorry, how to be a better um, boss of sorts. And what, what kind of practice did you adamantly try to implement when creating Daily Hive um, based on those kinds of learnings? As soon as we started... Um, having actual like people that worked here um you know it was like having meetings with everybody's involved everybody's kind of able to say what they feel um you know kind of just hear everybody out what their ideas are and transparency is i think very very key um we're a pretty open book if you you know want to know how much money we made i'll tell you how much money we made Someone wants to know how much money I make in the organization. I'll tell them. I'm not gonna put it on a wall, but I'm 
it's not a lot, <laughs> you know? So it's like, I'm not like, I'm not like when you hear those stories, like the CEOs already made, you know, in day one more than the average Canadian. Oh, I'm not that guy. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not too um, scared to kind of share, overshare. And I think the with with blends is it was always a lot of the meetings were done uh, very secretively, not secretively, but like it felt like it was a secret that you know the the directors go in and they make a decision and and we have to live by it. Um, obviously, they made the decisions with a lot of knowledge and everything, but it was just it felt like they were making it in a very uh, closed door kind of manner without input mm-hmm. um, and feedback and. I think that's super important these days for any company, for any individual. No, yeah, 100%. I think it's it's one of those things where trust has to be earned, right? And to earn it, you got to trust people first and be honest. And it's crazy how people will, what's the word, reciprocate and be mm-hmm. honest back with you. Yeah, I, I, and you know, the biggest thing I think when, when you know, I go in like you know you see the wave of entrepreneurism and, and and how it's kind of evolving now and everybody in the 2010s was all about hustle hustle to you know sleep is for the week all that stuff and now you look at it it's like no 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 you need to sleep and you need to only work for it. like it's taken like such a big like pendulum swing from like you're always working to like nah you don't need to work that much just work 40 hours a week and you'll be fine I don't know I you know the pendulum swings and I don't you know which is right it's it's very dependent on 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 on, i think the stage of the business uh the stage you as a as an individual in your life um like if like you got you're married with children yeah you better swing to the end of the the spectrum where you're not working 80 hours a week because that would be detrimental to your personal life um but if you're in your early 20s you ain't got nothing to worry about you don't really have real real world problems and responsibilities right now then why not make the best of it and grind as hard as you can so that when you are in your 30s, you do get to kind of leverage off that and 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 and, and uh, um, reap what you sow kind of thing. Like, you know, you put in the effort. You've learned and grown so much. And um, in your 20s, you've made mistakes and you've kind of, but you can in your 20s, right? In the 30s, you can still make mistakes, but they have a lot more real, real world repercussions in a sense that if you got a mortgage or you're paying rent or you you're providing for other people, there's there's implications to that. Or like when your organization grows and it's got almost a hundred people, you're not only responsible for your per, your family, um, but you're also responsible for the, all the employees. So the problems, you know, so everything kind of gets like, um, what's the word here? I'm looking for. A bigger spotlight is just shown on, shown like uh, uh, put on everything, and, and uh, so the idea that you know the balance and how how much you work and stuff like the pendulum stuff, and and shifting it back to employees is it's it's the same kind of thing. There's employees that love to work, and then there's employees that you know what they kick it and they want to go at four thirty five o'clock. They've done their job. They're doing enough, you know, and and you got to realize as a manager or a leader, those two people are different. They're on different trajectories. And how do you communicate to those people that, hey, look, Billy over here is working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week because Billy wants to achieve this. So that's why he's working towards it. But You, you know, your goal is you you want to achieve this and, and it might not be professional. It's per- personal. 
And you just want a career that allows you to achieve that. So whatever money that is and time freedom that you need, can we offer you that? Can this role offer you that? That's, you know, that's how you got to look at it as a manager, I think, and for employees. And if you give them that leeway to kind of just figure out their own balance, and then you figure out what, what makes them, you know, tick and what makes them like, you know, what to do to kind of get the most out of them. But when they need to put the brakes on and kind of just chill out and, 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 and take a t- some time for themselves, that, that, that's management, right? That's when you kind of just, and it just comes from communication and trust, like you were saying. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's funny, it's, it, you didn't dream about, you know, this kind of thing happening to you, becoming a leader of, uh, you know, close to like a 100-person company. But when you embarked on starting Vancey Buzz, like back in 2008, what what was the kind of tipping point? Like, you know, kid, when, when you're growing up, when you're in like your mid-20s, and at least when I was in university, like, people talk about like, oh, like the world should have X, Y, Z, and like, oh, I could probably do a better job than this person. And you can, people have all kinds of ideas, but to actually execute on that and actually think about, maybe we should make something actually pushing through it and when you actually decide to do that what was what was that story like so like the tipping point of when i wanted to know that this is what i wanted to do forever no um just like the kind of tipping point in the starting of fancy like <laughs> even to the start oh, what got me into it yeah i think part of it was okay the you know i didn't know what i wanted to do um i was at blends i had a lot of free time on my hand i, I you know accounting wasn't my go-to so me and my buddy Manny um, looked at us like, you know, we were in our, he was earlier 20s, I was in my mid-20s, and I was like, man, I, I could use to make a little bit more money, you know, I want to buy some sneakers or some video games or whatever, and he's like, yeah, man, like, we, we should just start, like, a website, put up some Google ads, and we'll make some passive revenue, I was like, yeah, all right, what are we going to write about, right, like, and we had no idea what we wanted to write about, so we just started writing about random shit, um, I still think one of our, our our first posts was just a YouTube clip embedded. It was some dude dubbing over some Transformers clip, and it was fucking hilarious. And we thought it was funny, so we posted it. Why? I don't know. Uh, but we just like, all right, this is our first post. And uh, we put some ads up on Blogspot. Um, it didn't make any money, obviously, because nobody's, <laughs> nobody's watching it. And also, you need, like, millions of views to even, you know, make money through ads so we quickly realized that we ain't gonna make money but we might have to put some money into this but for me i found it kind of liberating that i made the decision i saw it i'm gonna post this i published it it was live and then i was like you know we should do this but we should do this for vancouver because we always complain that nobody's talking about the real vancouver you know Yes, the mountains and the ocean, and 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 it's a it's a pretty beautiful city. But there's a lot of great things happening in the city that nobody ever talks about, and a lot of it's hidden within the walls of clicks. Um, and we wanted to expose some of those things and just kind of really let people know that they oh, there's some good shit going on, and here's some cool stores, and here's some cool people doing some cool things, here's some cool artists, and all that kind of stuff. So that. That was what motivated me, I think, at the time was that getting the wording and the messaging out, connecting with new people and learning about what they're doing. And it was, I, at first I was very introverted. I, I still kind of teeter between introversion and extroversion, but, um, you know, I, 
and an accountant's path is primarily introverted, right? You're knee deep, you know, you're in your books and, and you, you, you really just present your work and then you get feedback and it's very like, you know, unless you go up and you're a controller, very, you know, your first few roles are very like, hey, just data entry, right? So it kind of got me out of my shell um, uh, and, and really showed me, even showed me that there's so much more to the city. It got me out of my bubble of East East Van and the South side of the city um, to, to explore beyond it. And that's when I was like connecting the dots and I was like, there's so many cool things going on and we got to talk about all these, but how am I going to write about all these while I got a full-time job um, and I'm not a good writer? <laughs> um, and, and, and then how are people going to read it? But I think it was just really, I fell in love with the process. Can you paint a picture of what the operation looked like in, let's say, like 2009, like after a year in, with you know, you're still working at Blends full time. Mm-hmm. Were, were you like, were you a man like running around Vancouver after work hours, meeting people, like being journalists? Like, yeah. Can you take a picture of that? So I think 2009 it was just before the Olympics. I would get up every morning, uh, six o'clock, and I would do one or two articles before I went to work, um, and start work at like nine. Then lunch break, I would do another one, maybe two articles. I'd have to learn to be really quick at writing. So hence, there's lots of grammar and spelling errors. Um, But, you know, I had a knack. I figured that I may not be the best writer, but I knew what stories should be told, Um, which is just as important, I think. And then I was also really good at like SEO, clickbaiting the shit out of titles. You know, not clickbait, because clickbait means that I looped you into something that you didn't want to click on it but like having a title that's click worthy um but you know the url is structured in such a way that if someone was to google it i'm gonna pop up first or second even though i don't have much of a domain authority and all that kind of stuff which you is seo is so much more complicated now than it was back then if you were on blogspot which is a google platform you got a benefit you already were bumped to the top of the line i felt because they were really trying to push that so then i just made sure my urls were like dope <laughs> and and it was like a you know it was trial by fire that's all you know and i would literally go to computers and google things i didn't know what keyword search was and all that and i don't even know if it existed right back then it might have it might not have but i would literally google how i think people would google things and i would make that the url and and and, and that's how we would rank high and we'd get a lot of organic traffic from google so <laughs> we game in the system a little bit um to get traffic and then twitter was big so i'd go on twitter all the time talking to people and it really allowed me to expand my network um and really expose um uh, at the time fan city buzz to a lot more people yeah like to write like what is it like as many as from like three to like six articles a day it seems like you write two in the morning you write one at lunch and then maybe you write two in like the afternoon after and then maybe one after I got home. Right. Yeah, but like, honestly, they weren't like, I'm not sitting here like they're great articles. It was literally my thoughts about something put into a <laughs> blog post, right? Um, it, it was a definition of what a blog post was. Mm. It wasn't a news article at the time. It was literally like, yo, this is a cool store. You should check it out because it was one summer I went there and they had all these things. And it's like literally me telling a story of me experiencing my time at that store. Mm-hmm you know and that's it <laughs> so it wasn't anything like it was easy to write because it's just what i what was in my head 
I didn't have to worry about structure or any of that shit. I didn't care. I was like, this is what it is. Check it out. And then I just made sure the URL was like, you know, XYZ store, Vancouver, hours, days operate. Oh, so whatever people would search and I'd put it all in the URL. <laughs> so it was awesome. Like it was just gaming the system. And how, when, when did you kind of, you and your co-founders kind of realize that this could be something like, when was the moment where there seemed to be enough traction? The Olympics? Yeah. T- yeah. 2010. Mm-hmm. When we did the Olympics, we, we covered it from an angle that an outsider's perspective, um, you know, there was other blogs out there, um, that got media accreditation, um, but we didn't even know that we could apply. <laughs> you know, this whole world of media was so new to us. We were always considered outsiders. To this day, you know, we're going to be considered outsiders. Um, I think we've gotten a lot more respect because we have amazing journalists writing for us now. Um, but the journalistic community as a whole, you know, I don't think they want to give us any benefit. Even though we're kicking the shit out of all of them in this market, you know, province, sun. Georgia Strait, Curry, whatever they are, we're beating them hand over fist. More people know who we are. More people read us. Uh, more people are engaged with us online. Yet we're not. They're not going to give us a respect, right? And 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 that's um, that's for me. It's like cool. Like whatever. I'm just going to keep plugging away and keep doing what we're doing. Um, I think it's a disservice to our writers. Um, but you know, I don't know how to get on a tangent. <laughs> Fuck! What happened there? <laughs> we're talking about the how we go yeah so being an outsider yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) so yeah being the outsider we took it we just took it and ran with it we're like okay well we can't get into any of these events we can't get into the media houses we're broke as fuck we have no money um so tickets we didn't win any because it was all a lottery system um how are we going to enjoy the olympics and 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 what is arguably i think the two i think what's it a two-week event the two defining weeks of this city uh, I think lifespan right now. I know everybody likes to talk about Expo is probably the first one. I think the second one is the Olympics, the 2010 Olympics. I think for me, the world figured out what Vancouver has to offer, mm-hmm. and it was at a such a crucial time because the the the, the economies of the world were now colliding. They were coming together. They were converging. And the, these artificial borders that have drawn up on a map and po- geopolitical borders that have been created, you know, I think people are starting to break that down. Like, these are just, these aren't even actual borders. They're just lines on a map. You know, obviously there's rules and tariffs and all this other stuff that kind of like free trade and all this shit that doesn't, isn't really free trade. But, pe- you know, there's mobility, you know. Before people be in Canada, they're like, yo, maybe I'll move to Toronto. Maybe I'll move to Montreal. Maybe I'll move to Vancouver or wherever. Now people are like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go to Paris. Maybe I'm going to London. That mentality is is exponentially higher now than it was, I think, in the early 2000s. Um, the mobility and the freedom of mobility. So Vancouver kind of really kind of got that um, surge. And then I looked at it as like, well... I can have fun still. There's free concerts. There's free things to do, but people just don't know. So we wrote an article and every day, um, the the article that we wrote was like, I can't remember how many, it was like 51 free things you can do during the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. And that article blew up. And then every day I would get up in the morning and I would write, here's the five free things you can do today. 
And then here's all the other things that are going on that if you, you know, that aren't free, but you can pay to get in. But the angle that we really liked was free, 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 free. And then I don't, um, you know, we do a lot of giveaways uh, on our platform and it was really just uh, some uh, Burks, someone that was a PR rep for Burks reached out to us and they had some sort of, they had an Olympic necklace or something. And we were one of like, I think three outlets that was going to give it away but we were the first one to give it away. And I leveraged that to gain followers on our Facebook and Twitter. Like, Hey, if you want to win this shit, you got to like us on Facebook mm. or you got to follow us on Twitter or like retweet to enter. So the virality of that contest went crazy. Um, that was insane for us. So that was our kickoff point. Wow. Cause a lot, a lot of people were searching that time, what to do in Vancouver during the Olympics. So we, we just grew from that. And I, I remember spending those two weeks, not working too much at blends. No, not too many people were working at all, but I made sure that I was working on the site and I was monitoring social media to see what people were saying, how they were interacting and interacting with those individuals and talking about like getting a kind of like a, almost like, um, you know, now they have all these like sentiment analysis tools where you can see how people are feeling and what they're talking about. Back then, I don't think there were any tools readily available to scour all of Twitter. So I was just literally going through feeds and hashtags to see what people are saying about the Olympics and then seeing if there's any story ideas from that that could be born. Like if everybody was asking the same question and nobody's written about it, I'm going to find the answer and write about it. And then I'm going to ping everybody and save, I would screenshot or save everybody that had that question and go back to them and be like, hey, remember you had this question? Here, we wrote an article on this. Check this out, check this out. Check. I'll go back one by one and just like reach out to everybody mm-hmm. um, and just like market directly to people. <laughs> and it, it just seems like, you know, some people might be like, wow, that's so, that's so lucky that the Vancouver Olympics just so happened in like 2010 when the site was just kind of rising. But, you know, I think there's a saying that luck is when opportunity meets um like being prepared or something like that mm-hmm. and when you and your co-founder you know running vanity hive i went vanity buzz did you like feel that this was going to be a big opportunity like was it very apparent was it where you felt like we gotta like buckle down this is the moment where we're gonna work like 100 hours like this is what we gotta do yeah well, two weeks. yeah like honestly we saw that i just saw the traffic go spike and i was like that had got my adrenaline pumping um you know it's not like we hit like a million page views or anything but i think we hit like close to like seven hundred thousand page views that month and for us that's a lot because we weren't doing anywhere close to that before we were doing maybe a hundred maybe right and then i knew obviously there was going to be a post-olympic drop-off but the drop-off was like we went from 700 to like 350 so we retained a lot of users yeah um people kept coming back to us we gained a lot larger social following um and then it dovetails really well because the Canucks went into the finals. So <laughs> we kind of got lucky. Like luck is a part of people's success. Obviously, you have to be there to take advantage of it and realize the opportunities there to take advantage of it. But it's dangling. It's, it's whether or not you see it and then do something with it. We could have easily been like, well, we didn't get media accreditation. What are we going to write about? Right? And then we were like, well, we'll we'll write about it from like this perspective. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is Mm -hmm. because they all have media accreditation. They're too busy living it up during the Olympics while we're slumming it up, right? Right. So for me, it was like I had the time of my life um, writing about it. And it it was, yeah, it was fun, man. And leading up to it, you know, 2011, Stanley Cup finals, 
heartbreaking loss for us, but big, big city event once again. What kind of learnings did you leverage from the 2010 times to make sure that you guys really capitalized on it and like didn't miss anything? Yeah, you know, I, same thing. We kept the pedal to the metal during the, the the playoff run, but we took it again from a different lens. We had a we you know instead of writing about how the game went because I don't know how to write you know analysis on a hockey game. I just knew either we won or lost, or there was this one big hit or this one big cool like deke or whatever, and we would take it from or this fan had a funny sign. And we would find the the fringe stories um, that people were interested in um, more so, like you know that 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 the province at the time and, and, and you know and still great at covering sports, right? They, you know they weren't going to talk about these kinds of things mm-hmm. um, on a regular every once in a while. And then that was a time when also remember I don't know if you remember, but um, everybody was doing their own hype videos. Like, oh, was that the time? Yeah, like everybody was making like hip hop videos or like videos about the Canucks run. That that started, and then we were sharing those, and um, people would give it to us. Like, hey, man, I made a hype video. Put this up, and then some of them made it to like the uh, actual like the Canucks took it on. They put it on the jumbotron during the games and stuff. It was pretty cool. Wow. So we just really took it from a fan perspective. We're fans. That was a great hit by uh, Ballard, you know, or what? Look at that shot by Cass or whatever it was. Like you know, like we took it from that perspective. Or like some kid, like I don't know, there was like a Lego. Like during the Sharks, I found a photo online on Flickr, um, and this sticks in my head of a guy, a guy wearing a Canucks uniform, hockey stick in hand, and he's holding up a shark. Right, and like as he's like captured the shark, and this is when we were playing the sharks, and I was just like, I'm gonna put this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's was, and then that's it, and that got like twenty thousand views. It was took me literally maybe two minutes to, you know, obviously I serendipitously found it. It was, um, but it was like it was not, there was no freaking nothing, no substance to it. Other yeah. than he's the guy that made it. Here's a credit to the account. He said it can use the photo pretty cool we're gonna kill the sharks <laughs> you know and that's all it was it was like writing from a fan's perspective um oh, man, and that's all we did that was a rough series i actually went to that game um i've been a san jose sharks fan for a very long time oh for real uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh shit i'm, I'm always like kid at school wearing the san jose sharks jersey and my friends were like hey san jose you know what the jerseys are dope <laughs> yeah yeah right i don't blame you the jerseys are dope um what made you become a sharks fan well so who they have like Paffaloon? <laughs> This this was back in like the old like Patrick Marlowe days. Like, Marlowe, yeah. yeah. Joe, Joe Thorne wasn't even there then. Yeah, um, he was at Boston, right? Yeah, I think? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but this was like way back. Oh, fuck. It was before we had Luongo in the Canucks. It was it was the other guy who who had like the weird round Arti- helmet. Art- Artis Urbe. Is it okay? Yeah, like, yeah and like, I just I just didn't enjoy watching the Canucks, but I saw the Sharks just like cream them. And I was like, I like, I like the Sharks. Honestly, yeah. Okay. Man. So that was like. Late nineties, early two thousands, which is before the West Coast Express era. Yeah. Before, oh wait, Dan Cluche. Are you talking about Dan Cluche? Cluche, yeah. I didn't like Cluche. Yeah, I he like, was. I don't like his play at all. And I was like, <laughs> I, I really don't like watching. Him. Yeah, <laughs> and then, and then the Sharks had uh, Nabokov. Yeah, Nabokov. Yeah, yeah. Nabokov. like yeah. if if honestly, if the Canucks had a half, like well, God bless Cluche, but fuck, if we had a good goalie, we would have won with maybe the West Coast Express. We had such a solid team, yeah. but our goaltending was weak. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. our weakest element. And, and and the Flames had an awesome goaltender. Yeah, yeah, the Flames had a great goaltender. A lot of people had a lot of great goaltenders. Now there's tons of great goalies, but like back then, there wasn't. Every team did not have a great goalie. No, yeah. yeah. Now like every team has a good goalie, but back then, nah, man. Like ten teams had good goalies. The rest were like, yeah, we got a goalie, <laughs> and we were one of those teams. Like Kluge is good. 
but not really, <laughs> you know? And he was never the same after, I don't know if you remember that goal that Nicholas Lidstrom scored from half, halfway. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, I think, we were up 2 nothing on the Detroit Red Wings. He let that goal in and we fucking lost that series. And I think he was never the same after that. It's a, highlight, it's a highlight reel goal, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, you guys, you guys hit it big in 2010. You had the big traffic. Was that when you also got your first big advertising client to, you know, make this become a business? Or when did that Man, happen? Man, oh, big advertising client? No. Um, so what I did was we never really knew how to sell and do advertising for anything. We don't know what to do. So I just knew that we needed to create some sort of demand. So I talked to someone at Blends that was in marketing. Like, look, man, I'm going to just, you don't have to pay me. I'm going to put up a, an ad saying that Blends is one of our community sponsors or some shit. So I, put up an, so I took the Blends logo and I put it on the website saying they're a community sponsor. And in the hopes that, and then I wrote like advertise with us. In the hopes that you know, people see Blends, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, something's, these motherfuckers are getting something, right? Like Blends is putting money into these guys. Um, and then from there, the first deal deal i think that we did and i might be wrong but i'm pretty sure it was this i don't know if it even exists anymore but it's people that uh these two women entrepreneurs that came up with this idea called the bachelor plan and they would basically plan out your whole bachelor party for you and they would also have like car dealers and all these other kind of things for you they reached out to us and they were like hey we'd love to like put our little logo on there how much does it cost i was like uh, let me let you know I, i'm gonna go check my rate kit and all this kind of shit and i made up some stuff and then i came back to him and i talked to my buddy co-founder manny and i was like dude we, we, we finally go get somebody's <laughs> gonna pay us right we were so excited i think we ended up only like charging like 75 dollars a month <laughs> what? i don't know what to charge man and and the internet still was such a new thing to people Wait, so, sorry so when did this advertising happen like is it that's like 2011 2011 probably. Yeah. damn yeah 75 bucks a month that's a steal of a deal even oh, back totally. then um but i don't know what to charge and then they signed off for a year so we made like 750 eight, like 840 dollars i remember um cash flow positive uh, not really but i think we were still losing money because oh. <laughs> of all the server costs because our traffic started spiking right oh right yeah so the the consequences of a traffic spike are that and then we needed to do you know and then i was like look oh, we need to get off a of blog spot we need to have a better brand our logo needs to be better it can't be the shitty logo that i made like all these things need to we need to level up and and it was all just a a slow organic process you know there was no business plan throughout i think until like last year you know um which is scary um to think sometimes because if i was to die then i don't know but i think the team's pretty good that they know what we were we're trying to do but um there was no real like solid solidified business plan but i also feel like business plans are kind of an outdated way of kind of doing things because things change so quickly every year you 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 need to redo your business plan and relook at it and reevaluate how you run your business because shit's changed so fast now it's not like every decade there's like some sort of like crazy change no it's like every six months to a year there's something that could impact your business or the way you do business rules regulations technology societal trends whatever it may be there's always something such a fast pace so yeah nowadays you got a kind of list like it's like a like a moving business plan Mm -hmm. and as you're constantly growing you know fancy bus and you i think you stayed at blends for seven years until you finally decided like seven more years until you finally decided to go full time into you know, building Daily Hive, like rebranding to Daily Hive in like 2016. What was the uh, now? We're kind of we're gonna talk about the inflection point when you yeah. decided, all right, 
this is this can actually be a full-time gig i don't have to be a <laughs> controller anymore um yeah it was a calculated risk i think there was maybe five or six employees that we hired full-time already before i had jump ship i was kind of scared to be honest to jump ship because i was making good money at blends um and i had a long conversation with my wife and i was like you know she was she's always believed in me she's always supported me um even though i you know at the time maybe didn't see it that way but she's always been there to support and she really looked at it and she's like look this is what you want to do just do it and i was like nah but we need to make xyz to make the mortgage payment and you know and at the time my son was i think four four years old or five so you know she wasn't working at the time like and vancouver is expensive as shit so like i was like I got to be smart about this. I don't need to make the same money, but I need to make at least this much. So then I had to really look at the cash flow of the company and like, is this the right time? Because um, I was still working like full time, but I felt like at that time when there was the fifth employee, we would hold our Monday meetings after five o'clock because that's the only time I could do them. Um, I felt like an outsider in my own company that I built. You know, and that's when I was like, shit, I need to, I need to come in here because otherwise this is going to always, it's going to run away from me. Um, I need to get in now. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I I think that, that moment and then like my wife really pushing me like, you know, you should do it um, was when I did it. It was a calculated risk though. I couldn't just like, no, you know, I'm going to. Who cares if I make no money tomorrow? It's cool. You know, no, I was, I was like 30, maybe 31 Mm. at the time. So no, man, you can't just, I needed to make money, (laughs) you know, and I needed to know that we're going to continue to make money. Um, so that, that's probably, yeah, like that, that's what led me to it. So feeling like a, that was the company was getting away from me, but also like my wife really believing in me and pushing me to do it. Mm -hmm. It's also crazy how, how you just continued building it while you worked full-time like you had full-time employees at the company while you're working full-time somewhere else you had a kid and you know i'm sure you hear plenty of excuses from other parents who are like i don't have the time to start something else i got a kid but you have you're, you have a ready you have a family you have a full-time business and you're running a company and you're hiring people like during that period though did you did you ever did it ever occur to you that you could ever do daily high full-time or what was it that kept you constantly going, building it on the side, putting all those hours into that? Um, to be honest, you know, I just loved doing it. So free time, I was devoting it to it. So it didn't really yeah. feel like work. Oh. Um, and it still to this day doesn't, you know. I love coming in to work on, like Mondays, I love Mondays, you know. And um, I feel like I've hit the lottery, like the jackpot. I live, I, I get to do what I want to do every day. I'm not work, you know, it's nothing wrong. Like a lot of people love working for good people and that's, they love their job too. Not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and I wouldn't suggest it on anybody either. There's a lot of, it's glamorized too much. It's a lot of, um, a lot of shit comes with it. Um, a lot of sacrifice has to be made when you're building something. Um, for me, it was, I sacrificed not going out as much. Um, I sacrificed, uh, you know, I wasn't the best, um, I'd say husband and father in the first four or five years of the business. 
Um, uh, I wasn't you know, focusing on my health as much. There's a lot of little things, you know, now that I, and some of those things you can't come back and correct, <laughs> you know, um, but, at, you know, what I, obviously I would make, you know, I would change a, a few things, but, um, but I, I, at the end of the day, I still would want to fucking do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else I would do, you know, um, I love doing this and it's really just the people I love working with them. So, um, it was tough to manage though. Um, but I just, it was, it made it easy because I loved it. It wasn't like I was for chasing money, you know? And to this day, I don't do it. Well, I definitely don't do it for the money, but I do want to make money so that the company can grow. Um, but if you love it, then, and it doesn't feel like work, mm-hmm. you know? So then you're okay to not go out. You're okay to not spend money on eating out or going to the con, whatever it may be. Cause you're just like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm online. I'm working and it doesn't feel like work, you know? So yeah, it was, if anything, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was just, it was easy. It came easy in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there's a lot of fallout from, from building something, especially, yeah. When you're doing something full time too. Yeah. Uh, there's a fall, there's some fallout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, from you know, despite the easiness, there obviously are tons of obstacles on this kind of journey. What were there any that kind of like stuck out as like big pivot points where it's like, fuck, I don't know if we're, we're gonna survive if we can't overcome this obstacle, or just like you know, dark times that you like think about sometimes. Yeah, there's always moments in the company that you're like challenged to the point of like, are we gonna make payroll? You know. It, and, and there was times where we weren't going to make payroll. And I was like, all right, well, who's got a line of credit or who's got some money saved? We're putting in money to keep this going. Um, but when did this happen? This has happened a few times. Throughout. Yeah. 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 Um, it's funny, you know, you, you invoice people, they don't like to pay on time, right? So <laughs> I'm an accountant. I know when the check is in the mail, that's bullshit. That's that's the other company kind of like, yeah, yeah checks in the mail. Or like, oh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the signee's not here right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you know, so like I know what that means. That means you don't got enough money, your cash flow managing on your end to make sure when you can make the payments and we got to fucking pay these people right now, right? So like it's a, it's a, it's a cycle. Um, <laughs> so there's moments where we have had to um, do that. Um, there's been moments of damage control of articles that we've written um, where – you know, those not so much like it, you know, to me, like if people want to take shots at me, I don't really give a fuck. It doesn't bother me. I, uh, say whatever you want about me. You don't know me. Whatever you want to say, go ahead. You know, as long as you don't say anything personal to my uh, friends and family, say whatever you want to me. But like, you know, or my journalists, like I hate when people kind of rag on them, but it's they've kind of have to grow a thick skin real fast because everybody likes to say whatever they feel nowadays. Right. Um, and they're entitled to their opinion. <clears throat> so we have to, um, you know, navigate those waters. Sometimes people say some crazy shit and you're like, whoa, is this like for real? Or, or are they just joking online? Like, oh man, we got to be careful. Like maybe we shouldn't write about these kinds of things if we're going to get threats like this. And, um, yeah, so there's moments of that, but really it's just like, it comes down to like, if you really want to see something succeed, you find ways I've had, I've had to call up people last minute. Like, yo man, you got 20 K. I need 20K. I, I promise you're the first person I pay back. 
um, in two weeks or three weeks. I'm going to get some money from these guys. They said they're going to pay us, but the check hasn't arrived yet. As soon as that money comes, I'm going to give you the money. And and I'm fortunate enough to have that um, ability. And, you know, my biggest thing was like scaling a business on, you know, next to, you know, two, three percent profitability doesn't give you much room for error. But I knew that there's an opportunity that we need to go now or else we're not. It's going to make it that much more difficult to get into this market in a year or two. Um, but that, when do you make that decision? And do you make that decision? And do you go in light or do you go in heavy? Like all those things kind of come into play, but you kind of have to look at it and you got to make some moves sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you got to make some cuts somewhere else if true Canadian expansion is what we wanted to do. And people said we were crazy going into Toronto and Montreal. Um, to this day, people are surprised that we're successful. Um, but I was just like, yeah, like, I guess you don't know me that well. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna like, yes, we hit a lot of obstacles along the way, but we, you know, we did it mm. and it was never going to happen overnight. I knew in a market like Toronto, it wasn't going to happen overnight. All the media companies are out there. There's a bunch of blogs out there already that do a really good job. Um, we were coming in last, you know, last people to enter the race. Um, but now we're like, you know, we're in the top five and, and, and now I want to be top three um, and then top two and, and then maybe one day top one. But, you know, it's hard when you got the CBCs and the tour stars of the world, but we can be three. I really think we can be number three in that market. Mm-hmm. And that's like not just looking at blogs. I think we can be the best of like our digital only people, but I think we can be number three overall one day. It's going to take some time though. Right. Right. That would take 10 years, maybe, maybe more, but one day. You know. what, what else are you going to do, right? Yeah, I know. That's it. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been bootstrapped the whole time. Yep. Right? Yeah, no funding. Um, Even in the, in the dark times, you didn't think about, fuck, should we, should we get We've thought about it. Yeah. yeah. We've thought about it. But then the valuations, I don't know how to evaluate a media company. Um, obviously, I thought we were worth a lot more because of all the you know user base and all this. But then people look at our numbers and are like, you're not worth shit. Which is fine, you know. Yeah, when you're only making like, ex like your know, profitability is so low, um, and the newspaper industry, the publication industry was in a state of like flux at the time, where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of capitulation, a lot of people kind of dying out. Then there's a lot of people coming in. The barriers to entry are none. We're living proof of that. You don't even have to be a journalist to start a website. You know what I mean? Like, there's this is a crazy time in publishing. Anybody that has an idea can be a publisher. It's crazy. It's awesome. But it makes it more competitive for the few ad dollars that are out there. Um, in Canada, at least. That's why we're, you know, I think American expansion is where we, we want to really excel. And what, what's this drive to constantly expand and like go to the States? And I think in another interview, you mentioned about maybe cross the ocean, maybe yeah. Pacific, maybe yeah. Atlantic. But yeah. Like what's motivating this constant push? Um, the motivation, I think for me, sometimes it's out of like, well, we kill it in Vancouver. We're killing it in Calgary. We flipped the switch on Edmonton and day one, we were doing 300,000 page views without even like, you know, any ad dollar spent in marketing through Facebook or anything. Cause we already have a brand presence in that market through the Calgary site. Um, they already knew about us and we do national stories, right? So it was, people were sharing our shit already. Toronto, we're doing almost three and a half, four million page views. 
Montreal is close to a million. We don't really focus on it as much, but, you know, because of the French angle, we don't really do it yet. Um, we will eventually, but we look at like Toronto and Vancouver as are like, you know, two main uh, focus cities where the agencies are located there. So that's where we want to be big in and have that brand presence. And then for me, after a while, I was like, I don't want to be just Canadian. I think a lot of Canadian companies are, are happy to be, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. They're happy to being big in Canada. I don't want to be big. I don't want, I don't know. I find it boring to be just big in Canada. And like on the grand scheme of things, it means nothing. Um, in, in the grand scheme of things, it means a lot, but it like, you know, in the world stage, it's not, it's like, oh, you're big in Canada. Cool. I want to be big in North America. And then once we kind of conquer North America, do we just, you know, safely travel across the pond, both sides of the ocean and go to Australia and England because they speak the same language? Maybe. Might be the smart move to do. Um, India could work too because they speak a lot of English as well. But you know, like I don't know, like you know, why why limit yourself? Right. You know, um, keep it out there, and 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 maybe you we do it, maybe we don't. Um, we got to look at all the market conditions and the financial conditions of the company, and and you know, do we want to do this? But um, for now, I think the challenge, you know, just like when people said you can't do Toronto, Montreal, and I was like, really? All right, cool. Let me show you. What now, are the reasons why people are saying that you can't do? Uh, you, you know, it's just, I think it's, I, I get it. It's a highly competitive market. Hmm. Uh, Toronto is a highly competitive market. Montreal has its own nuances. You know, the Quebecers only like to support Quebec-owned stuff, right, for the most part. Cause that, and that's great. Well, they're proud of it, right? Um, but Toronto is a, is, a, is a highly competitive market, and we were just kind of growing into it. So, you know, I get it, but you know if you knew me when you you know if someone tells me i can't do something i'm that i'm that kid's like yeah fuck you <laughs> i'm doing it you know I, i'm gonna show you i'm gonna do it um there's no there's you're gonna fail on fail many times on your path to success so there'll be roadblocks and it'll look like we're not making inroads but it's you're chipping away at it you know if you're looking for instant gratification then you know a lot of people will quit barrier you know it's a process it's a long process it takes time to build these things and i'm willing to put that time in Mm -hmm. and given how you built all this judgment and experience over this long journey if you had to start a media company from scratch let's say like in the next month or so how would you go about doing it given like the learnings you have are there things you would do like differently now um would you still stick to the Five, six articles. <laughs> yeah. Take yeah, schedule, get yeah. a full-time job. <laughs> no, I think like, obviously, like if I could, mm, I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. Because when we started and to what it is now, you do need a lot more money to make inroads. Because um, there's no such, I mean, there's still organic reach, but it's so freaking hard to get. We were very fortunate. And again, this is luck and timing. We started in a time where Twitter was highly active, small community, but large impact. Mm. Facebook was free platform. Ain't nobody had to pay anything to go on it, to post on it. And the algorithm, I don't know what it was like, but it was, for some reason, it was highly favorable to us. So, you know, you wouldn't need money for Facebook to grow your page because Facebook wanted you to grow your page. They wanted you and they're part of their ecosystem. 
And they had this grand plan, which is now coming to fruition, which is smart. Um, we were lucky that we didn't need that money. SEO was easier. I didn't need an SEM specialist, SEO <laughs> specialist on my team. Building websites were, they were, it was just simpler. The barriers to entry are the same. But there's one barrier that's only different now is that I think you do need to be financially armed to make an impression in people's mindset because there's just way too much out there now. And Facebook and Instagram and even Google require you to pay to play. So you better have some money. So you're going to need some marketing budget to acquire users. Um, whereas back then it was time to acquire users, putting the right articles out, doing your own research and then targeting people. Now it's kind of hard. People are very like apprehensive of even talking to people nowadays online. I was like, shit, why are you talking to me? Right. Or on Facebook, like they just kind of peruse it. They don't really actively engage in it anymore. Mm. And Instagram is Instagram. Like it's not ever a, it's a more of a brand builder for us. Um, it, it generates revenue for us too. Um, and but it doesn't like in terms of driving traffic back to the site, Instagram's that's not their priority. Mm -hmm. So I would need probably to scrounge up a lot of cash. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would need cash and I would, I would need, oh uh, yeah, you only need about a hundred, hundred thousand dollars, hundred, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in marketing budget to really make an impact. I think to, if you want to do it fast, if you want to slowly grow it, then you just got to, you got to take some sort of weird, like angle, that nobody else is doing or go niche, you know, and not go broad as we have. Cause I think there's too many broad players now. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. You gotta be armed to the teeth now. I think a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a completely selfish question. Cause I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to learn. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I've been doing this for about a year and a half. How can I, how can I constantly like build it out? But right? I think what you're doing is great. You Thanks, know? Man. Yeah. Cause like what you're doing is you're reaching out to people you're building your network, you're talking to them, you're, you know, and I, I haven't talked much about LinkedIn, but I love LinkedIn. Um, I think it's my favorite social platform right now because it's still very positive. Um, yeah, it's the only thing I, I use. Yeah, I love LinkedIn. And I think it's actually now starting to show, like if we write the right articles for Daily Hive, we're starting to see traffic go back to the site as well. We're building up our base on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, I think what you're doing is good. I think you're you're networking on a platform like LinkedIn and in it's infancy still where you can build a heart, a huge network. And when you build that network, if it's an authentic network, you're going to be able to leverage off that network. Um, but you got to do it in a way where if that network needs you, when someone calls upon you, you got to be there for them. That's the only way to do it. We were always there for people. Like I remember when people had, one dude had a garage sale. I was like, a garage sale? Why am I going to write about a garage sale? But he was a, well-known individual he had some cool collections i was like you know what even if you didn't and you weren't well-known you reached out to me and you want me to write about your garage sale i'm gonna write about it people it's still news right so we wrote about it and that person you know to this day still reads us i see them sharing our stuff on facebook from time to time um and i'm not saying it's that garage you know because i wrote that article on his garage sale but didn't hurt you know, most new media outlets are like, yeah, here's 50 bucks to post your garage sale on our classifieds. I'm like, nah, and just give me your information. Give me a photo of what you're selling and we'll put it up. And he was like, thank you. So that, you know, I, I think you still need to do that. Um, you need to help people um, whenever you can. Because um, that goes a long way. And just do it out of, it's just good to help people. You don't need to do anything in return. 
they'll give it if they're good people. They'll give it in ways, you know, whether it's just listening to your podcast um, or sharing your podcast. That's that's them helping you. Um, so, yeah, I think you're, you're doing good, man. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you just it's keep like, doing what you're doing. Yeah. No, I think that's that's all I need to hear. Yeah. You know? Consistency and uh, is key. You know, you got to continue and, and continually do the, what you're doing mm-hmm. and consist, be consistent. Show people that you care. So then they'll care. And if you do it once in a while, they're like, well, he really doesn't give a shit. He's just doing it as a hobby. So I'll passively listen. But if they see you putting in work, they'll admire that. Yeah. At the very least, they'll admire it. They might not like what you're doing, but at least admire that you're putting in the effort, yeah. <laughs> right? No, not yeah. to say that it's just not good. I mean, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> people don't have to like your work. That's the one thing I learned. They don't have to like what we do or how we do it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Can't please everybody. No, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's. I think that like the formula I found is just persistence and just striving to meet the quality I set, but just trying to keep on pushing at it constantly mm. pumping everything out on yeah. a weekly basis trying to keep the promise keep the promise yeah yeah keep the promise it's it's hard sometimes though yeah you get sick you hit a wall mentally you ain't there physically you might not feel like it there's 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 moments right um where you just like you question everything you're doing like why the fuck am i doing this right so how do you get yourself out of that um when you hit that wall that moment I just, for me, you got to just let it ride out. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly natural to feel that way because when you're working or you're doing anything in life, it comes at some sort of sacrifice, whether it's sleep, money, time with people you love. And and because of that, that's why you kind of, you know, you have those moments of like, am I doing everything I want to do in life? Is this what it is? Should I travel more? Should I spend more time with X, Y, Z? Like, those are good moments of reflection. I don't think they're, they're they challenge you. And, and then maybe at one point you're going to look at it and be like, maybe this is it. This is the end of the road. I don't want to do this anymore. But you hit a wall and then you just got to kind of get through it. It's it's tough, but you just got to kind of get through it. Um, whereas, you know, for me, like I've, I've hit it many times where I question like, why am I even doing this? You know? Hmm. I'm working my ass off here for, you know, how much money am I making? Um, do my employees even give a shit? You know, you, you question all these things. I'm sure they care to some extent, but they're their own human beings. They don't need to give a fuck about my company, right? They just have a paycheck. But then I just, I don't know, you just question it. I don't know. And, and then you just kind of let it go, uh, like, fro- you know, let it all flow through your mind and, 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 and then you just move on. You just kind of keep moving. Mm. You can't let it. You can't let it, um, what's the word, paralyze you. Right. But it can happen, you know? Yeah. Am I hearing some shit, right? No? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty loud in the other room. <laughs> it's all right. It's good to meet your employees. Hey, I'm yeah. having fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, yeah, it's, like, it's one of those things where you, impl- you might implicitly know it, but it's always helpful to hear it from someone else. He's kind of gone through it to say it too. Yeah, and it's not just entrepreneurs. I think everybody goes through this existential crisis yeah. <laughs> every once in a while. We're like, like, yeah, it's like, oh, am I not supposed to be loving this every yeah. single moment? No, maybe not. No, man, you can't. <laughs> it's like anything in life. You're gonna hate it 
if you love something, there's going to be times where you're like, fuck, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, the love-hate relationship. It's real. It's real. Um, but it's born out of love because you care about it. Yeah. Because um, if you don't care about it, it's indifference. And you'll let it go real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do care, even though it might be difficult, you're going to try to keep going because you love it. That's how I see it. Some people might be like, that's bullshit, but that's how I see it. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, that might be a pretty good place to slowly uh, wrap up this interview. <laughs> and there's some kind of final uh, fun questions I like to do with my guests. For sure. And one particular question is, if the 20, 22-year-old Karm were to look at you right now, so I guess he's probably in like third year, fourth year, SFU, maybe just graduating. Mm, yeah. Were to look at you in this you know wonderful office what do you think his uh emotional reaction would be he'd probably rub his eyes and be like am i fucking dreaming (laughs) 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 this doesn't seem real um i think it'd be one of like oh shit yeah i don't know i think i feel like he'd be surprised because 22 23 year old karm didn't really think of doing this yeah having an office with tupac on the wall yeah, oh yeah, Tupac and Biggie and all those guys. Um, yeah, no, I yeah, I think it'd be just that. Honestly, like, all of this sometimes just feels surreal. Mm-hmm. You walk in and you're like, whoa, that's pretty cool. But then you just kind of get out of it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a big, like, I should celebrate my wins more with the team, at least for the team's sake. For me, it's just like, I have fun every day just doing shit. So every day is a celebration in a sense, but yeah. Maybe he's just like head scratching. I'm like, oh shit, this guy did this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he'd believe it. Is there an advice you'd want to give your 22 year old self? Would you wish you could have like heard from your own? Yeah. Voice? I, I think like knowing what I know now, you know, um, spend more time with those that you love. You know, give them, give them your attention. And then, yeah, that's probably what I would do. I think like, you know, there's, there's regrets that you have. It's just like, sometimes you just you get caught up in whatever you're building. So I think like for me it would be that, like dig into those that care about you um, and, 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 and be there and be around them more often. Is there a particular time that kind of that makes you think hard about that? Yeah, I think when I was like a young father and early husband, um, you know, I think I could have done those things a lot better. Um, but you live and you learn, and as long as you're learning, I guess that's a as a consolation prize to that. Because um, some people never learn, or some people don't give a shit. Um, so for me, it's always been that, like I, I, you know, but I also, like I said, I'm an introvert, so I do like being alone a lot. And when you run a business, you're never really alone physically. Right. But you are always alone <laughs> mentally because nobody really understands what you have to do, deal with and what you're going through. You know, when you're running the company, even your partners, your co-founders don't understand the, the amount of pressure that's on you, you know, to perform no matter what's going on in your life. There's a lot. So, you know. I think 
those elements of who I am and how, you know, how I am kind of rub into it when you're like surrounded by all these people, your energies is drained. You don't have energy when you get home, um, which is unfair to the people at home. So balancing that and doing better at that would be what I would want to kind of work on and what I would have told my 22, 23 year old self, but he'd probably be like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's too young for that kind of shit. <laughs> I don't know. Work me all. Yeah, I think that's a that's a solid advice. Is there anything else that you wish we kind of covered that we didn't get to talk about today? No, uh, I mean, I think those are like really solid questions, dude. I mean, yeah, it was a really you. good interview. It was fun. No, I appreciate it. I, I had a lot of fun too. Honestly, I I would have wanted more time just because you're such a fascinating guy. There's so much more we could have learned from you, but I think mm-hmm. we also did cover a lot of cool stuff today. Yeah, I like cool. to ramble a lot, so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes yeah, maybe I uh, I kept stretching the questions out a bit no but i find i find there's always gems <laughs> in rambling yeah that's it kinda, true it kind of takes you down the creative tangent yeah and i like to go on tangents quite a bit yeah yeah <laughs> well Carm, i had a lot of fun and thanks for man. sharing your story with myself and my guests appreciate it oh no man appreciate you wanting to even talk to me that's kind of cool <laughs> i appreciate it man thank you awesome take care Bye. All right, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and Go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate. And donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.